Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. And one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Stephen Fox, the executive chairman and founder of Veracity. Stephen, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. So, Stephen, uh, the topic of this conversation today is ESG intelligence. Now, most people are kind of warming up to ESG in the first place. Could you first kind of give our audience a background of, of how you perceive ESG and how it's a good driver of growth for organizations? Sure. So just to take it to basics, ESG, environment, social and governance issues, a kind of way of looking at the world through a certain framework and saying these kind of issues around the environment, around social issues and around governance issues make a difference. And the central hypothesis is if companies do ESG well, those companies will produce better financial returns, the argument. And by the same token, if you can spot problems in the ESG arena, that's a way of understanding risk that's out there. Now, this is a whole, we call it paradigm shift. And it's happened starting in Europe and then has come to the US relatively recently. Hmm. Stephen, what got you into ESG? Where were you beforehand? Oh, so I've been around and I like to think we've been in our business involved with many of the issues that are today called ESG issues. So not so much on the environment, but social and governance issues. And starting back in 2007, when we put our business together, we worried a lot about corruption concerns, about stakeholders, about political risk, about reputation risk, about labor issues, how were employees being treated? All of those issues were ones that we worried about either because there was a compliance, regulatory, legal reason to worry about them, or because you didn't want to be on the front page of the newspaper with a concern. Today, that whole range of issues and many more are now in the ESG bucket. Interesting. So I, I like how you proceeded like a risk lens. It's a way investors can kind of put on some, some goggles and kind of see uh, risk adjustments based on their environmental stance, maybe their intention to reduce carbon emissions, social, and then governance. What about social though? I've, I've kind of heard the S is uh, referred to as the messy middle, kind of hard to gauge what, what social means from an investor's perspective. Elaborate on that. So let me take a step back from that. Uh, just before the pandemic, I was uh, waiting to get into an event in Davos in the World Economic Forum. And there were a couple of senior executives from uh, some big banks that were there. And I was talking to them and I was saying, why are you guys suddenly concerned with ESG now? And they said, Stephen, we've always kind of been concerned, but we're concerned for two reasons. One, our investors are demanding us to be more concerned, but even more important than that, our own employees, particularly younger millennial employees, don't wanna be associated with a company that's doing the wrong thing. 
They want to be on the right side of where the tide is. So I think that the drive is coming in part from within, which turns us to the social category. So when bad things happen in, in the social part of ESG, that's where um, it winds up often being front page of the newspaper kind of stuff. And uh, you know them when you see them. So I have a whole pile of newspaper clippings behind me. One that I clipped out the other day was on human rights concerns with regard to Lipton, the tea company. Now you're thinking Lipton tea, what could possibly be a human rights issue? Well, it turns out that Lipton is a completely vertically integrated business owned by Unilever. And they owned uh, tea estates in places like Sri Lanka, but also in Kenya. And in 2007, a number of their employees wound up being killed during political violence in Kenya on those tea estates. So the question was, did the company do enough to protect their employees at the time? And that lens is now being applied as Lipton is putting that particular set of assets up for sale. So our Unilever is putting up the Lipton asset. Five or 10 years ago, no one would have been concerned with that kind of an issue, as important as it is, in the context of a sale. Today, people are asking that question, and it made the threshold of being a Financial Times story. Mm. It makes sense. You know, I mean, everyone has a phone nowadays, communications being spread to everyone. People want more transparency in what's going on in these organizations when it comes to the supply chain, the workers, and, and that great case study. That you just said. Now, my question is this, though: Are, are companies changing and uh, being forward-thinking about this, or inve because investors are pressuring them to do this, or is it more reactive after an event happens like that? So, the classic intelligence answer would be: It depends. So, you have some companies that are what we would call ESG attentive, meaning that they really care about these things and that they're at the forefront. Other ones are simply in the tick the box category, or they're trying to do the minimum amount from a compliance perspective that they have to do. So by asking the right questions, either as an investor or as an employee who's thinking about joining a company or someone generally interested in the space, it's pretty easy to see based on the reports and self-disclosure, but also on this important topic that I expect you'll get to, which is greenwashing. And this is the issue of where a company says it's doing the right things, and the reality is actually not the same. They've exaggerated what they're doing in relation to, to reality. And I think the biggest concern in the ESG space today is the amount of greenwashing that's there. And I can go in at great length as to, to how and why that's happened, but I'll, I'll spare you for the moment. Well, I think you made a great point. Uh, you know, Where does it fall under the ESG? Is it under the marketing arm or the operational arm? And I think we're kind of getting it. That's a great way of being able to distinguish. So some companies place it as an investor relations. Others have it as a separate sustainability arm. And it's interesting to see where does sustainability report. But the far more interesting is how does it become inculcated across the entire company and become a part of the genes of the company, the thinking across an organization? up and down, top to bottom. If it's just the CEO who's saying we should be doing this, but the company's employees are, are not fully there and a part of it, then there can be a disconnect. 
or sometimes there are employees right on the floor who want to do the right things, but they're not getting support from management. And we've seen both instances. We also see a lack of consistency across organizations where some part of it will be doing, right? So front page of the New York Times today, a story about uh, leather being used from Brazil in car parts, in car seats. So the company, the car manufacturer, the tier one supplier, and then going three or four steps down into the supply chain. Again, there's an ESG issue over the cattle that provide the leather that winds up in the car that the customer cares about. It makes sense. Another example I could think of top of mind is Ennis Cantor's work right now with Nike in opposing the, the, the labor laws. You know, Nike, uh, you know, a very progressive marketing company when it comes to social issues, uh, which a lot of people love. And then when you look at kind of behind the curtain, you know, a lot of uh, you know, employment issues that have been going on for quite some time. For an investor, where do you have your money specifically and why do you think investing in these organizations uh, is going to give you a higher return? So I think it's still early days in terms of the scientific, financial, academic validation. But in principle, the instinct is right that if you have happier employees, you're likely to retain those employees over a longer period of time. Less attrition and churn makes for emissions and lower costs in that. But the far more important is, are your employees thinking about quality issues all the time? And from a social perspective, are those employees working under conditions that the company should be proud of and that the employee is proud of? Again, all the way down the supply chain. Mm. Makes sense. And, and I'm just thinking about like a basic investor like mine, like my money may be sitting in like a Bank of America, Wells Fargo, uh, you know, um, you know, Merrill Edge might be my investing account, right? But a lot, where my money is stored, those banks are lending a lot of money to pretty corrupt organizations and, and organizations that uh, are funding and giving loans to big projects that aren't really taking into account this metric. You see a big paradigm shift where it comes to how the traditional investor is storing their money and investing it? Absolutely. So we talked a little bit earlier about the S. Coming to the E, environmental category, I think coal, coal-fired power plants is probably the best example, that those are very difficult to get financing for today, that banks, whether it be Bank of America or anything else, don't want their money being associated because there's too much controversy in relation to the level of pollution from coal-fired power plants. Now, the real sign that there was a change for us was in Japan. So we do a lot of work in Japan. And a couple of years ago, Japanese companies, we would say, did not pay a lot of attention to ESG issues. And then some point the light bulb went on and now the big Japanese financial institutions will not touch coal-fired power projects with a 10-foot pole. And that was driven off of Japan's Postal Savings Bank, which is like a big pension fund saying, we want this to change. And that led other investors to say, you should stop funding coal-fired power plants. Now, the challenge is that the world is still going to need coal-fired power plants for a period of time in that energy transition. And the ones that you may have actually wind up the legacy ones being quite dirty mm -hmm. along the way, because good funders won't 
fund any projects at all. So maybe we've gone too far too quickly. Hmm, interesting. And you do have a global perspective on things, Stephen. You've been traveling the world. Uh, you were an ambassador for for our country. I mean, uh, tell our audience uh, a little I, bit about. He's not an ambassador, just a diplomat. But yes, diplomat. Excuse me. Um, what's the difference? Who's counting? No, I'm kidding. Uh, right. Tell our audience a little bit about your, your global uh, perspective and experience. So it is interesting to see trends around the world and different drivers. And as I noted, Europe was a, a prime driver where Europeans expected higher environmental standards, ultimately social standards, and different governance. And people in the U.S., pretty much didn't pay attention until about two years ago. And then I think the, the person who was the biggest single driver and transformer of ESG attentiveness in the U.S. is the CEO, Larry Fink, from BlackRock. And he was certainly in a position to say, through one of his letters to shareholders, we do care about these issues and you should care about them too. And then controlling uh, a large number of, of investments on behalf of people like you and me, um, when Larry Fink and his team speak, uh, people listen. And that in turn had resonance and it spread and had a ripple effect very far and fast. Larry Fink was also on our cover really. There's a quick little shout out there. We, you know, we support the work that he does, but people are still skeptical about kind of, again, the greenwashing of kind of his work and his investments. Um, one of the terms that's been thrown around, and, and I'm sure you've already heard or is coming, is uh, is go woke, go broke. And it's a, it's a big, you know, kind of lens that uh, they're kind of putting out there to say, look, these ESG investments can't bring in the same return. Do you, is there a fallacy there that you see in that statement? Yeah, I think there's a tendency in the world to make everything as simple as possible and to boil it down to a soundbite or to a, a, a Twitter 140 characters. And the world is simply more complicated than that. I like that phrase. I mean, it's easy to remember, um, but it's not remotely accurate. Yeah. And that is, uh, there are a series of social injustices that may be appropriate to address. The scope of what falls within the responsibility of a company is probably broader today in terms of interest that shareholders expect of companies to take beyond just making profit alone, uh, a paradigm shift that's there. And ESG is part of that general transition. And that may also be a function that governments have not been able to deliver as well uh, as would be expected. And so people have to step into the void. And maybe there's an expectation that companies are partially stepping into the void left by the lack of trust in, in government. And then the degree of accountability that can be put forward, especially on, on social issues to say, how do we make things actually change? Who can step up to the plate and do X, Y, and Z? Mm. But that's very different than saying you're woke or you're broke. Definitely. No, absolutely. Uh, and when you were mentioning your global perspective with Japan and they want to touch coal, the 10-foot pole, I'm curious to know what you think about the future of energy. Where do you see it going? I mean, I'm reading articles about uranium right now in the uranium markets. I'm reading articles about uh, the new infrastructure and energy grid that the United States is trying to put in. Where do you where are you putting your investments right now when it comes to renewable energy or just energy in general? Well, one area is on the energy side. Another is clearly on electric vehicles. 
And we've done a lot of work in the mining sector over a long period of time. And mining traditionally, on the one hand, has been considered a very dirty business from an environmental perspective. But if you take a typical car today, the kind of car you're probably driving, assuming you don't drive a hybrid car, that car needs about 15 kilograms worth of copper. An electric vehicle will need around 80 kilograms of copper for it to work. And over time, that copper usually will go down to probably 50. But it's still going to require three to five times the amount of copper. And there's a lot of cars that are going to get manufactured every year. So from an investment point of view, I would say, as part of that transition, look at the minerals and metals that will go into making the transition. It's like in the gold rush, you want to be the person selling the picks and shovels. So copper is the picks and shovels of today's green transition into electric vehicles, as opposed to necessarily the Teslas of the world. In that every car, regardless of which one you buy, is going to need copper, and copper only comes from a limited number of places. Then comes the ESG dimension. Okay, uh, is that copper being mined in a socially responsible way? Now, the places where copper comes from, most of it, Peru, Indonesia, Chile, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa, DRC. Of those places, Chile is probably the one that's got its house most in order. The other three, Peru, Indonesia, DRC, all have significant social issues of concern. So are your mining companies paying attention to those social issues as they're trying to bring the copper that you need for an electric vehicle or the various minerals that, materials that go into your iPhone? So Apple is certainly paying a lot of attention to its supply chain from a social issues point of view to make sure there's not child labor being involved or that it hasn't been part of uh, conflicts in, again, Central Africa, in the DRC, that's, for the metals that you need. That's really interesting. So what you're saying, too, is like, you know, obviously, you know, the, the minerals market, copper being um, a, a very scarce but most valuable resource right now. Maybe it's not scarce, but it's going to be a resource that a lot of uh, car manufacturers, uh, hybrids, uh, electronic vehicles are going to need to use to produce uh, but what's going to make a good investment for investors uh, are going to be the investments of the production facilities, the operations that are um, in accordance with ESG policies. Is that it? So I think it's a matter of one, as you point out, getting the right raw materials. And then are those raw materials being produced according to appropriate ESG standards? And the car manufacturers are going to look all the way down their supply chain right to the mine in Africa and say, is the stuff going into my car coming out the right way? Because I don't want my buyer to associate my car with poor ESG practices. I've got people who want to drive an electric car, but is that electric car also being made in a socially responsible way? Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. That's a really good analogy. Now, the macro trends that you're seeing, uh, whether it's Japan or other countries, when it comes to uh, a policy uh, that governments are setting to increase renewable energy grids or uh, encourage and incentivize consumers to purchase uh, electric vehicles or people to make more or become more sustainable, what are you seeing around the globe and what do you see happening here in the United States? Well, one, I think the biggest question is not 
is there going to be a transition? I think that the COP26 events of the last two weeks sort of pointed out that it is going to happen. The big question is, what's the rate of transition? Is it going to be like this or is it going to be like that? And I think the answer is it will depend and it will vary according to different parts of the world as to how quickly those transitions can be made. Now, the absolute number one player with regard to transition is China and how fast China will be able. Now, China is a world leader in electric vehicle production. But from an ESG point of view, there are a whole lot of issues in China that are not yet quite where we'd want them to be from an ESG perspective. And that's a journey as opposed to something that happens overnight. Hmm. Let's talk about China a little bit. And let's talk about why it would be in the United States' best interest to go toward renewables. Is there anything you just mentioned, you're just going to depend on how China reacts to this. Um, do you see, let's just take for an example, a, a macro policy of carbon tax. Do you think a carbon tax would be a, a good tax to compete with foreign imports? So I should say, I'm not a tax um, expert by any stretch of the imagination. So I don't feel like I could give you a qualified answer or a well-qualified answer on, on that particular question. But what I can say is there clearly is clamoring demand from voters and from world leaders responding to that demand to say, as a society, we need to be doing something more and it's not just lip service through tax subsidies that we're providing, but we have to be able to put the infrastructure in place. So um, if you want to buy an electric car today, the problem is there aren't that many places to plug in your car to charge it. And to be able to have enough charging stations, there is a massive subsidy provided by government that encourages you from a tax perspective to buy an electric car. But you can't readily use your electric car and be able to plug it in everywhere that you need and get it recharged. That's going to dissuade people from doing purchases of electric cars. So the key, as any of these, is to think holistically. The tax piece acts as a catalyst. But if you don't have the other component parts in place, then I'm not sure that it, it covers all the ground. Right, right. That's, that's a really good point. I'm also thinking right now about where that energy comes from currently uh, for a charging station at my local Walgreens or Walmart over here, is that energy coming from coal or is it coming from solar panels currently? And, and how do you see this transition kind of going to phase this out? So again, you've asked a really good question. There's a project that we're involved in looking at the potential rolling out of electric bus networks in a particular country. And I can't yet say where it is because it's still in the planning stage. Um, great to have electric buses, and that's going to go a long way to reducing uh, uh, pollution from buses, which are major polluters in this particular very populous country that has a need for lots of transport. Then the question is, how are you powering those electric buses? Are you doing that off of renewable energy? or is it coming off of the grid? So you can put solar powered plants near your bus depot that will help and will make a little bit of a difference. But the challenge is that for your buses, you actually wanna refuel them, recharge them at nighttime, 
when the electric power is actually more available and people are not riding the bus. But the problem is during the day is when your electric grid is really busy and needs that extra power to meet all the demands that are there in so many growing countries. So again, it becomes a much more complex issue than just saying, let's install electric buses. Do you put renewable energy to support the buses? And then how do you put, it's the marginal use of electricity that's the important bit. When the grid is running at 100% and it's going over, how do you get enough electricity to make sure that your grid doesn't fail? Hmm. And the challenge with many renewable projects is you need to use it as it's happening. Hmm. You can't store the solar overnight. You use it as it's going on. You can store it for a very limited period of time, but uh, not beyond that. Interesting. Stephen, do you, do you consider nuclear energy to be renewable energy? Um, I certainly think of nuclear energy as uh, a, um, an area that deserves a whole new look and round of attention after um, the push. So it's not a fossil fuel. Uh, it has to be managed very carefully. And we saw in Japan from Fukushima and then going much further back at Chernobyl and Three Mile Island, uh, what happens when there are nuclear accidents. So those can be devastating and it can be dangerous. But the reaction was probably too much of a reaction when those events happened that set nuclear power back. And are there ways of running safe, efficient nuclear power plants? Yes, I, I expect that there are. It's actually the French who were the furthest ahead in terms of the provision of nuclear power um, across their, uh, their country. And I think it's about a third of electric power in France was being generated off of nuclear. And then with renewables, the amount that's coming from fossil fuels is probably the lowest of any major country. Right now we're in a time of a great resignation and the people are very skeptical. Or, or concerned about what's going to happen to the, the labor market here in the United States, what's going to happen with foreign affairs, with uh, competing countries. Um, but there, there also is a lot of optimism when it comes to the energy sector and the dependence on the U.S. dollar for um, futures to come. What do you see happening in the future? I know, I know your answer is it will depend, right? It will depend. But what do you see happening in the future as we transition off the petrodollar and, and more countries, I guess, would be more reliant on uh, you know, the Fed? Well, even through shale energy, that's already happened in terms of the consequence between relationship between energy market and geopolitics. So there was a point in time when um, the U.S. depended on oil from the Persian Gulf and from elsewhere to meet U.S. energy needs. As a resu result of shale energy, that dependency is no longer there. And as renewable energy becomes more and more apart, that's going to be even less the case. So there are practical um, consequences for that from a geopolitical perspective in terms of where our real interests are. At least many people are, are saying that today. At the same time, uh, the U.S. remains one of the very few, if not the only country that can project power on a global basis. China is rapidly uh, moving and doing so, and certainly Russia in its own neighborhood can project fairly serious power. Uh, so if we suddenly withdraw and move the pieces of the chessboard off the chessboard, that creates real voids and real problems. So I think one has to be thinking in terms of very long-term horizons, and you've drawn together 
questions related to energy, national security, geopolitics, and most importantly, probably the trust of individuals in their societies and in their political leaders. And that trust, and I think Edelman does a very good trust barometer, uh, and that trust over time is unfortunately decreased in leaders uh, and is not showing um, a, a shift and, and a move uh, in an opposite direction. Now, I don't know when we reach the bottom point and we rebound up further, or maybe we don't reach a turning point and rather the way in which society becomes organized shifts over time to to deal with with the modern realities that that we face mm. Mm. i think that's powerful and, and it's also tying in you know what you're saying the the rate of adoption right is it going to be this is it going to be this and the rate of adoption moves at the the speed of trust right building relationships leadership people you know they want to trust and, and who's at the top and, and and what's really happening i see right now when it, you talk about corruption a lot the cryptocurrencies being an alternative uh, for understanding where your money is uh, at every point and step on a ledger. So people are kind of shifting to this blockchain technology, this crypto, they trust it. it's not owned by the banks, it's not owned by the, the man. What are your thoughts on cryptocurrency in terms of regaining trust? And does it have any core, uh, correlation with uh, green energy? Um, so I, I guess I'm one of those late technology adopters and, and I don't own any cryptocurrency and I, I'm a little skeptical good, at the good. point when my trainer from the gym was telling me that he was investing in cryptocurrency. I felt like I was hearing the kind of housing bubble all over again, or maybe I was just not technically adept. It was a, a possibility, but I, I think it's the case with crypto. Um, the new technology can certainly be very valuable and create uh, financial and other applications that are extremely useful. At the same time, there's part of the crypto world that touches on illicit trade, on lots of illegality, corruption, the ability of people, just as they can stay outside of the banking system, you have uh, criminal and very corrupt uh, dictators and others who want to be able to move their assets in ways through crypto, which circumvent the normal banking channels and um, uh, they have a nefarious aspect as well. So again, it becomes a question of how do you strike the right balance? And one should also be aware that there's uh, a certain amount of theft of crypto assets that go on with state actors um, that uh, in certain parts of the world who have tried to uh, uh, break into people's accounts and, and are able to, um, to do so. And in essence, to um, move their assets off the blockchain from them to to someone else that they can be manipulated so i, I think it's it's not um a foolproof panacea it has value but one has to look in in a careful and measured way i i you know i totally agree and again i'm not a an expert as well um and then i love your reference of you know someone at the gym tell me about this and that's really what i've been thinking but it just keeps popping up it keeps popping up and you see the other day you know staples center gets purchased by Crypto.com for like one of the largest brand deals for a stadium. Uh, it just makes you think, am I behind? Am I late on this? Do I get in now? Um, but an, an interesting perspective coming from you. Switching topics. Impact investing. Sometimes it gets thrown into this ESG category. Um, but on the show today, I want to make sure we split the difference between an impact investor versus um, someone who's investing based on risk on ESG. So clearly. Impact investors are driven by 
the idea first of doing social good and trying to improve society or some aspect of society. They want to make a financial return and they absolutely don't want their investment to be charity, but the rate of their return that they're willing to accept um, is partially balanced out by the social good that that investment may be doing. And that's noble and appropriate. And the difference between, you know, if I could give money to a charity as opposed to being able to make a social impact investment, maybe I'm willing to give, I don't know, 5% of my money to a charity, but maybe I'm willing to put 10% into social impact uh, investing. I don't need to have the highest level returns on it, but I want to see what can I do for the greater good. I think ESG is different in that the central premise on ESG is to say, you're not sacrificing returns for ESG, but rather you're flipping that upside down and to say, the companies that will make the best returns with the lowest risk of going off target and getting off track are the ones that pay the most attention to the range of ESG issues that are relevant in their particular sector. The phrase is material. Stephen, what's the best example that you can think of when it comes to a company exemplifying uh, how to appropriately uh, make sure they're, they're falling in line with the, the ESG accordance and how it's actually bringing a higher return to the organization? I know you've talked about showing up in the papers, what that could do to the brand in the long term. Is there another case study that comes to your mind that goes, this company by doing this is going to be more profitable? Well, first, I'm skeptical of those companies that tout their ESG credentials as part of their marketing exercise. So Oatly is one that raised money on a very high valuation from private equity and was involved in saying, oh, we've got everything right on the ESG front. And then revenues have disappointed. Now, is that to say that Oatly's done the wrong things in ESG terms? No, but they tried to create themselves as an ESG uh, player as the leading element. Mm. I think the key is how do you build a good business and do you take into account ESG across your business? So I'm going to give you an example of one that I actually think is a really good company from an ESG perspective. And your eyebrows may raise like this when we say that. So it's actually Walmart. So Walmart, huge company, has paid serious attention to ESG issues. And they have a large team of people who work on it and they produce an ESG report. But they've gone in a very thoughtful way to say, what happens in our supply chains from an ESG perspective? And given that our supply chains are so big, we can actually have an impact on a very broad swath because of the demands that we put in place. At the same time, on social issues, I don't think Walmart is by any means perfect and has probably created a great deal of disruption in the economy from a labor point of view, but they also have begun to pay attention and say, what can we be doing from a social issues point of view to uh, offer the appropriate benefits and standards, et cetera, to our employees. And I don't think that you change a giant aircraft carrier overnight, but you have people within that organization from the very top all the way down into the field who are thinking about these issues on a day-to-day -day basis. 
uh, in full transparency too, yeah, I'm an investor in Walmart just for that. You know, I've heard about the great things they're doing intentionally trying to work with their supply chains. I've spoken to business owners who have been approached by Walmart about how to do direct to customers with fresh you know, pr uh, source produce. Um, they're they're really stepping their game up um, and, and increasing their wages as well. It's it's really impressive of what they've been doing. Um, I heard this question the other day, Stephen, and I want to ask you it because uh, I hear a question like, oh, maybe I'll try it out on a guest on the show. What's one thing that you've been wrong on where you've kind of grown up in, in this space and you've thought one thing was true and, and kind of later in your life you go, you know what? I don't know if I have the same belief in this, this um, you know, subject anymore. Well, there's so many areas that I've been wrong. I don't even know where to begin. Um, I think the first is to have the humbleness that comes over time to know that you can have such conviction and you can be wrong. So that's the the first and to be able to, um, to see it. Um, I think one area where I've been categorically wrong was understanding how long it takes to do certain things. And I've assumed that stuff could get done very quickly. And that's because I move pretty fast, but the rest of the world doesn't move at the pace that I want to move at. And then when I'm looking and assessing uh, companies on behalf of, of our clients and investors, I have to take a step back and make sure I'm not looking at that company necessarily through the American paradigm of somebody sitting in New York, which is a fast-paced, dynamic city. And the business that I'm looking at may be operating in India, where Parts of India are very fast and dynamic, but other parts really move at a snail's pace and have to deal with bureaucracy and all kinds of challenges. So I think the biggest one is um, looking at things through not only your own lens, but trying to understand what's the lens through which and the constraints that a particular business operates. So to bring that to conclusion, when I come to the ESG category, I try to look not only at results, but what's the intention? Where did someone intend to go. And if I've learned anything, it's by the willingness to add that intentionality mode. And I, I think that the measures that are out there on ESG, they often depend on self-reporting from a company. And they also are trying to be very data-driven measures. And to assess uh, this intentionality question can often be extremely qualitative. How far did a company go? What kind of a journey are they on? How much is this just being driven by um, one executive saying something? Is the board behind it? Is the management team there? Where are the employees? Where do the customers sit? How do they relate to their supply chains? How many of the pieces all come together? So it's that intentionality as opposed to the box checking or the PR. Oh, it's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. I love that. And, and I think it was off the top. I, I think of intention. I, this beautiful. That's great, Stephen. I, I think intention is like the North Star, right? And to go with your ship example, of trying to kind of steer to get there. You know, if you've got a, a ski do or jet ski, right? You know, you're trying to trying to chop over the waves. You're going left and right. You're trying to figure out who you are. Left, right. You got a sailboat, then you're tacking, and you're going back and forth just to get that next star. And then if you got a big ship, you know, well, machine, you're cruising right through that thing if you know who you are, and and, and that's a great understanding to to. Realize so we looked at one, absolutely, that happened to be in the shipping industry. Ah. And uh, ships that transport use a great deal of 
um, of uh, fossil fuels and create a lot of pollution. And there's a small number of shipping companies that are actually at the forefront and have said, we want to invest in better boilers and uh, processing of the fuel that goes through and, and runs our, our ships so that they make less pollution along the way. It's more expensive to do that. There's higher capital costs and they cost more to run. And there are a few of these companies who said, that's what we're going to do because we believe it's the right thing to do. And at a certain point, customers will choose to work with our ships if that's what they believe as well. Mm. So that was a pretty bold move cool. in the first instance. It actually turned out for those several companies that did that to have been a good move in that they are more expensive, but there are people who are willing to pay a premium to pollute less. That's going to happen in the aviation sector over time. At the moment, there's a, um, a small amount of um, special carbon fuel that can go in, but it's vastly more expensive than ordinary fuel into a jet, but supposedly lowers the, the carbon footprint. I think that's a trend line that you're going to see over time. People will pay more for doing what they believe is the right thing. It's exciting. And even on Tuesday, we had the CEO on a semester at sea, largest floating campus you know, in the world. They're looking to do the same thing, go net zero. Um, would love to put you in touch or understand who that uh, company is so he can get in touch with them. He's, you know, he sets the goal. He doesn't know how to get there. So working to find new solutions for that. I think that's a very inspiring feat as well. What's Veracity's intention? Uh, I think as we come up to our 15th anniversary, we actually have a strategy meeting tomorrow to talk about nice. long term. Um, where do we go? I think in our particular business, um, we said it takes years and years to build a reputation and moments to lose it. So we focused right at the beginning and every day in trying to maintain a reputation for doing high caliber work and doing it in an ethically appropriate manner. And especially when you're working as we have been from the beginning on corruption issues, you wanna make sure that the way in which you're working is completely um, beyond reproach. So that part of our value proposition is a non-negotiable. But at the same time, you say, okay, in our particular business, part of which involves providing due diligence and assessments of risk for companies who want to operate around the world, um, there has been commoditization and an interest in people paying lower prices for what's very complicated work. And they want off-the-shelf shirts as opposed to a custom-tailored shirt. And often it's very hard to produce a custom-tailored when the marketplace wants an off the shelf. Um, at the same time, you can't necessarily do a good job off the shelf with the kind of work that, that we do. It's the equivalent of, of going to a very specialist doctor. So how do you adopt? Um, we got into the ESG space early on and we invested in having people in our team make an effort to really learn and to build on our own experience, but to go out and talk to those who had more expertise than we did in order to bolster our own knowledge. And so that's what we wanna keep doing and everything. And about six or seven years ago, we brought a professor from Harvard Business School to spend uh, a day with us thinking about long-term strategy. And the professor's conclusion was, if you keep doing what you were doing in the business at that time, it's a race to the bottom. You need to distinguish yourselves. And he was completely right. And there were a lot of people around the table who were uncomfortable. People are always uncomfortable. And I think it's a lesson for your listeners of doing what they're not sure about. People like doing what they know 
how to do. And if they're challenged with doing something new, that can be tough, but it's only by doing something new and taking a long-term view and saying, is this directionally correct? You're gonna course correct along the way, but are you headed in the right direction? Um, it's good. And to that end, I, I try to read as much as possible on planes flying back to the US from Europe, which I, I do a fair amount. And um, now that the pandemic is sort of receding, I'm able to travel more and have time for reading. So coming back this week from London, uh, I was reading a book by a, uh, an interesting business thought leader named Dory Clark, and she writes about the long game. And I think that that was completely on target where she says you need to be thinking both at a personal level and as a company, not just in terms of quarters or even a year, but where do you want to be in five years or beyond? And now that our business is coming up to 15 years of age, I, I think we're sort of beyond the teenage stage. Um, we kind of can think in, in longer term ways than we had been able to do previously. And that's an exciting place to be. But at the same time, it remains a challenging one. I love that. Yeah. And, and Dor Dory is great. We actually had it on the show two weeks ago uh, to talk about the long game. And I think it's a great message that you give. I also love the example you had of uh, your, the, your tailored shirt. Right. And it's just like the gym I went to yesterday. I'm trying to get a new gym membership, Stephen. They said, you know, you want to go to EOS. They're, they're a volume gym. You're not going to be able to find, uh, you know, you have to wait. You're going to have to wait your weight. It's, it's not as good quality where we're a premium gym, right? We're just a little bit higher on the price level and we do a better job. And so uh, I'm curious to know their unique selling proposition to me was, you know, probably better equipment, less people at the gym. I see ESG intelligence here. We have emotional intelligence, right? We have your, your IQ. What does ESG intelligence mean? I, I think at the end of the day, it's really being able to not just look at the disclosures and the, the, the noise that's out there that comes from data and ratings, but to be able to say, what are the questions that I should be asking about a particular company or an investment? Or if I'm the company, what are the questions that I should be asking that I myself care about and that my investors care about that are custom tailored to my own business and that are responsive to the challenges that I face and that are important to me? So you have to define, and that feels very nebulous to people, and people don't like situations where it's not clear cut. And that's one of the challenges of ESG very candidly, and it's sort of I like to think of it as where the accounting world was before there were accounting standards, uh, different measures for different people. So how are you speaking the same language? The reality is that you're not, but are you speaking about the same general concept, principles, and values? Hmm. I love that. Uh, Steven, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for answering these questions that I've got flying sure. through my brain today. Let's bring this home. What is your definition of a real leader? Goodness, let me think about that. I think that the quick thought on a real leader is someone who is, one, willing to think outside of the box, two, is willing to take on board very much the views of trusted people and others around and to synthesize those, but to stick with his or her own convictions, even if they're in the face of those, if you believe it's the right thing to do on it. and. Showing leadership can often be a challenge. Sometimes you can be out there by yourself. Um, the question is, are you out there by yourself because you're ahead of the curve? Or are you out there by yourself because you're a real outlier and you're not going to get it right? And you won't know that until after you do it. So are you prepared and able to stick with it? 
And by the same token, when it's not working, are you prepared to adjust course and to say, hey, we got this wrong, I got it wrong, and I'm taking responsibility to move it where it needs to be. And, and I go back to one thing I, I think I heard in school in about the ninth grade, which is you're responsible for the consequences of your own actions. And I, I think at the end of the day, a leadership is about being responsible for the consequences of your actions and then trying to take the right actions to produce the consequences that you want. I love that. For Stephen Fox, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, think outside the box, and always, folks, keep it real. Thank you, Stephen. All right, good people, and thank you for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Stephen Fox. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Stephen, we had a question flying today, and folks, for listening right now, if you have any questions, drop it on in on the chat box. If you're watching on LinkedIn, come on over to Crowdcast and ask Stephen your questions before he heads off at the hour. Uh, Stephen, first question comes in for Julie, and she asks, what advice would you give to the next generation of investors? Good question, Julian. I think the advice that I would give one would be to read very widely and not just to follow the fad of the moment, but to try to become well-informed um, both broadly and deeply. So without being too nerdy, when you're reading a book, sometimes you need to go to the footnotes and understand where did the idea actually come from and take it down to its source as opposed to just seeing it off of some uh, some tweet. Question just for me, Stephen. Uh, what books are you currently reading right now? You mentioned The Long Game. Uh, where do you get your information from? Where do you like reading? Um, I try to read as broadly as possible. Uh, there was one by uh, Nicole Perloff called, uh, about cyber called um, This Is How the World Ends. And that's probably the most disturbing book I've read in a while um, about the, the vulnerabilities of, uh, that can be brought by computer hackers on on society as as a whole is there an event when you think of tipping points that you think is going to trigger um, a large investments or change in renewable energies or in the climate policy uh, whether it could be shortage of water uh, in america it could be uh, climate shocks fires is there a specific trigger that you think will come up shortly so can, i'm not sure if there's a specific moment but um, I'm quite a bit, I guess, older than you, and I can go back to thinking about with videotapes, there was VHS and Betamax, and ultimately on the videotape wars, the VHS format won out and Betamax was obliterated and, and isn't there. Uh, from an, and eventually, of course, VHS was replaced. I mention all of that because I don't think the deal is done yet on what form electric cars are actually going to take and what the technology is that's actually going to wind up being the definitive technology that powers electric cars. And it's, as Mal used to say, in the still-too-soon-to-tell category. Interesting. So are, are you paying attention to, like, I, I, I mean, when do you get into companies? What stage are the companies in when uh, Veracity invests? Um, so we don't deal with very early-stage venture-type investments. Uh, they're usually quite a bit further along. And the typical areas where the company is expanding into a new market or there's an acquisition going on, usually in a cross-border context. Uh, and during the pandemic, it's been very difficult for companies in the absence of meeting people face-to-face -to, -face to be able to do the kinds of deals. But people have adopted 
just like we're having this conversation, which a couple of years ago probably would have happened uh, in a studio and an in-person doing a video interview. And happily, my internet has worked. I want to hold my breath, but uh, well today, it doesn't usually. <laughs> um, and, and so what advice would you give to someone who's interested in, in kind of what you do? Like if you had to kind of go back, how would you get started, get involved and, and grow your own similar organization or get involved in, in, in a participating company? Um, I think that the way is uh, really to, we were talking with one of my colleagues the other day and we were thinking about uh, how do we build and hire for the next generation of people in our business and the ability to have an internship and to spend time experiencing what any company does and getting to know people within the company is extremely valuable. Um, and while we very successfully have hired people during the pandemic period over video and all that, um, it's much harder than doing so where somebody's working with you as an intern and they're spending time and you get to know them over a couple of months and you say, oh, that's really somebody that we want to have um, on our team. Can we find a place for them as opposed to are they the right fit for us? So I guess my number one advice would be to the extent that you can get internships, um, that is something you should, should focus on, whether in our field or, or in any field. Steve, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Any last words or people can find more information about Veracity? Sure. Um, I guess my last thought would be just um, coming back to ESG as, as a whole. Uh, while data and databases that are out there are useful, sometimes there is the need to go through that custom tailored approach. And that can really make the difference between getting it right and not getting it right, whether as an investor or as a company doing X, Y, and Z. So it takes an extra effort to do it, but the results may be valuable in the long term. And where can people find more information about Veracity? Uh, so we do have a, a website and um, I guess unlike most business intelligence firms, we actually try to be as transparent as possible and put uh, a lot out there. So it's uh, veracityworldwide, all as one word, dot com. Wonderful. Uh, Stephen Fox, appreciate you coming on. For folks that had to leave early or want to re-listen to this episode, go on over to Apple Podcasts, search Releaders Podcast, leave a review, and subscribe to the channel as this episode will be released next Wednesday. For Stephen Fox, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there. And always, folks, keep it real. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.